Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on some of our favorite NFL conversations. Michael Vick, a 13-year NFL quarterback and four-time Pro Bowler. Eddie George, Heisman winner, four-time Pro Bowler and nine-year NFL running back. And Malcolm Jenkins, a two-time Super Bowl champion and three-time Pro Bowl safety. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault. Here's Brian's interview with Michael Vick from June 2018. I've wanted to have this week's guest join me on Sports Business Radio for several years now. He's authoring one of the great comeback stories we've seen in recent sports history. Former NFL quarterback Michael Vick starred at Virginia Tech, was the number one pick in the 2001 NFL Draft by the Atlanta Falcons, became the most exciting player in the NFL, and had endorsement deals with Nike and other blue-chip companies that brought him $25 million per year, making him one of the highest-paid athletes in sports. Vic was on top of the world, but then he lost it all, including his freedom. He went to prison in 2007 for his role in the Bad News Kennels dogfighting investigation. The NFL suspended him indefinitely without pay for violating its player conduct policy. Vic spent 554 nights in prison. When he got out of prison, he was a changed man. He was given a second chance by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and went on to play for the Philadelphia Eagles, New York Jets, and Pittsburgh Steelers before retiring from the league in 2017. He made promises to save the lives of more animals than he hurt when he got out of prison. He's kept his promise by working with organizations like the Humane Society, and he's even impacted a federal law that makes it a crime to attend an organized animal fight. Vic has found success as an NFL analyst for Fox Sports, where he's part of the network's pregame coverage every NFL Sunday. I met Michael Vick in person on May 22 at the Sports PR Summit in New York City. He participated in a featured conversation at our event with Rick Buecher, and our attendees found him to be honest, reflective, and insightful. I asked him to join me on Sports Business Radio to discuss his career, what he's learned from his mistakes, and how he's made the most of his second chance. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Vick. My guest is Michael Vick. He's former NFL quarterback. He played 13 seasons for the Atlanta Falcons, Philadelphia Eagles, New York Jets, and Pittsburgh Steelers, four-time Pro Bowler. He holds the record for most career rushing yards by an NFL quarterback and most rushing yards by a quarterback in a season. He's currently an NFL analyst for Fox Sports. He's also heavily involved with the American Flag Football League and Alliance of American Football. He's developed his own line of clothing, V7 Clothing. It's available at v7clothing.com. And he's soon going to be relaunching the Team Vic Foundation. Follow him on Twitter at Michael Vic and on Instagram at Mike Vic. Mike, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for participating at the Sports PR Summit, uh, May 22nd at the Players Tribune. I got to tell you, I, I think I told you when you walked off stage, you're someone I had wanted at our event for a long time. And, you know, your candor, your honesty, your ability to reflect on your past mistakes was so compelling with our room of executives from across the sports world. How did you come to the decision to own your past instead of trying to make excuses for past mistakes? Well, I think in my case, I, you know, it was something that I lived out, um, you know, going through you know, most of the things that I went through. You know, when you're going through that moment, you you don't pay attention to what it's going to be like, you know, um, 
you know, when it's all said and done, you know, the only thing you think about is living in and now and trying to, you know, find a way to, to, to make it all right. So, you know, it's not all about making amends. It's about, you know, becoming, you know, being at peace with yourself. Um, so, you know, I, I've, you know, I've learned to accept it. You know, I learned to deal with it, learn to talk about it. And I think, you know, more importantly, just being able to give insight, um, you know, in my life and, and, you know, the right things that I did, the wrong things that I, I did and things that could have been done better. Um, you know, I just try to, you know, put it all in perspective. So the next person who, you know, you know read my book or, you know, follow my story or, or you know, Google me, you know, have more insight and, and see the progression you know, over the years. Well, I have a lot of respect for you. We'll come back to some of that in a minute, but I want to go back to when you were growing up in Virginia. The story I heard is that until you were around 11 years old, you were a wide receiver, and then you decided that, you know, I guess you were playing pickup games and they needed a QB, and and you stepped in as QB. Is that the first time you played quarterback around 11 years old? Yeah, I shuffled around a little bit. Um you know, and, and when you're young, you get thrown in, in different positions and in different spots, and you don't understand why. But I learned to embrace it. So I started out as a running back and then was a receiver for about two years. And then the day came when one of our star quarterbacks didn't show up. And like I said, at the summit, I looked around and didn't see anybody else who could take on that responsibility. So I put my hand up. And not knowing that it would be, it would be a lifelong journey, you know, in, in my sports career, you know, playing a position and having to learn it, you know, it was all about fun, you know, just having fun at the time and, and figuring out what the position was all about. But as I grew older, I just continued to get better and better each and every year. And uh, once I got to high school, uh, I had a quarterback battle, won that quarterback battle uh, as a freshman. And, you know, the rest was history. So... You chose to go to Virginia Tech for college. Obviously, you had a really amazing high school career, so you were you were pretty heavily recruited. But, you know, a few things about going to Virginia Tech. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were the first person at that point that received a scholarship to go to college in your family, right? Yeah, absolutely. My uncle uh, had got a scholarship, um, partial scholarship, to Elon University in uh, 1980s. 82, and eventually he ended up leaving school because uh, our family was struggling and he had to come home and work and, and help the family out. Um, so, yeah, I was the first. Um, my aunt graduated from uh, VCU, and, you know, she's very successful in, in her own right. But um, for me to get a full scholarship, you know, go to Virginia Tech, you know, was a lifelong dream. And, you know, I always wanted to go to the big schools, you know, the Florida State, the Notre Dame, Notre Dame's, um, LSU's and, and USC's, but, you know, somehow, some way Virginia Tech won me over. And I won't say I had a stellar high school career. I thought it was average, above average. Um, but I always knew, you know, once I got surrounded by some talent that my real talent would show. Um, and that's what Coach Bingham brought out. Um, they gave me the liberty to do whatever I needed to do at the, at the quarterback position to be successful, um, not only for myself, but for the team. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you were really a unicorn, so to speak. As far like we'd yeah. seen Randall Cunningham, we'd seen some people who were kind of like you, but we never really saw anyone who was like you. Where I thought, Michael, anytime you got onto the field, you were not only the best quarterback on the field, you were the best running back, you were the best 
athlete on the field. And it seemed like Frank Beamer really let you do your thing and maximized your talents. Yeah, and in the process of being recruited, as I studied the offenses, even though I didn't know exactly what I was looking at, I seen Jim Drunkenmill and Al Clark do things that I knew I could do. Um, knowing that the college level would be a lot faster, um, I knew I just had to gain weight and, you know, become more cerebral at the position. Um, it, it took more, it took a lot of time. Um, it, it didn't happen overnight. It was about a six month process, but my coach kept hammering, hammering me and, and, you know, making me come to the film room, making me study, uh, making me travel with the team. So I respect the journey. I respect, you know, the grind. Um, going from not knowing to knowing, you know, most of everything that, you know, I needed to know in order to move the chains week in and week out. So, you know, it, it was gratifying to look back and, and see, you know, just the progress that was made, you know, and the hard work and, and the push from the coaches. Well, and I think your freshman year, regular season, weren't you guys 11 or no? I mean, that's a pretty good start to your college career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, just, you know, just to be thrown in the fire um, early and, you know, knowing that the, the collegiate game is really, really tough. I didn't know if I was going to be able to, you know, thrive or survive. So, you know, just in, in everyday progress and getting better every day, more study. I mean, you look up at the end of the year and you're 11 and 0, you're going to the national championship. It's like a dream come true. And uh, even though we didn't win the game, just you know, having an opportunity to play in that game and, and, you know, please our fans, you know, meant more to me than anything. So someone like yourself who's so athletically gifted, I know you put your time in studying the plays and the film room, but when things break down on a play, how much do you rely on just, I'm Michael Vick, I'm faster than everyone on this field, I have a cannon for an arm, I can just get creative and make things happen? You know, sometimes when you're talented, you think you can do it all. But, you know, in in the, in the NFL and in college, you have to play within structure. So nothing can be predetermined. Um, you can have all the physical gifts, but, you know, you have to play within the realm of the offense. And, you know, I, I try to ex- explain that uh, to a lot of young kids because they may watch me and say, okay, on this play, it looked like he just got the ball from the center and, and just took off running. But that's not the case, you know. It was it was going through my reads and then you know let my instincts take over. So I think without the listening to this interview or watching a professional quarterback and if he's mobile and can do a lot, then they need they need to learn the system first and allow their instincts to take over because that's that's what makes you a natural. So at your pro day workout, you run the forty yard dash in four point three three. Uh, I guess you've run it in as low as 4.25, fastest ever for an NFL quarterback. You were selected number one by the Atlanta Falcons in 2001, first African-American quarterback to be taken with the top pick. When you get to the NFL, Michael, you just talked about, you know, doing your homework and everything at the collegiate level. But for me, when I watched you your first year in Atlanta and thereafter, it seemed to me like you were able to pick up the speed of the game and keep up with that once you got to the NFL. It wasn't overwhelming for you. Yeah, well, my rookie year was tough. Um, I played in a couple of games, didn't play well. Um, 
spot played a little bit when Chris Chandler went down. Um, but the second year, 2002, was the year that I felt like I really blossomed. I was able to get all the reps in, in the spring and OTAs, all the reps in mini camp, training camp, and just seeing a big difference um, in my confidence. So I think every, in everything is it's all about, you know, you believing in yourself. And, you know, if there's any doubt, then, um, you know, it, it stops the progress of, of what you can do. So, you know, the, the goal was to, you know, learn as much as I could. Uh, I credit Dan Reeves because he brung Steve Young in uh, for two days to work with me um, just to sit down and talk and pick his brain and, and, and learn more about the game. And, and I think that's what really uh, got me over the hump. Because both lefties, that, too. Yeah, both lefties. Uh, offenses were similar. Um, Dan, you know, did a lot of improv as far as, you know, calling plays from the sideline and creating um, plays for me. Uh, different than what Steve did, but it was some similarities. And we was able to gel that all together and, and really put together offense that made us successful in 2002. Let's go back to 2001. So you're taken number one by the Falcons. You know, I've talked to a lot of athletes on this show over the years, but I want to hear your answer to this. You grew up in Virginia. You didn't come from a wealthy family, but now you're the number one pick and you come into millions of dollars, six years, $62 million contract. When you come into that kind of money after not having it, how do you handle that? Because it's not easy for a lot of people. Yeah, well, you know, it's hard to explain, too, because everybody just don't wake up and, and sign a contract for, you know, five years and whatever, um, up to millions it may be. Um, you know, I, I think it's all about learning. Like, I knew nothing about taxes. Um, I knew nothing about investing. I knew nothing about having a finance advisor. And those are things that we didn't, we didn't, we don't come up learning about. Uh, they don't teach us that in school. Um, we spend more time, um, you know, taking, you know, quizzes and, and being drilled on things that, um, you know, we might not be ready for. And, and it all depends on, on the path you take and, and, you know, what profession you try to pursue. You know, in my case, it was football and, and you know, it consisted of having a, tons of money um, really, really fast. And um, just getting it abruptly like that, I, I you know, I, I didn't blow a lot of money. I was really smart um, as far as, um, you know, thinking long term and not wanting to um, overdo it. You know, the minute I signed my first contract and, and once me and my family went through the numbers, I instantly knew that a second contract was going to be needed for longevity um, to live the way that I wanted to live for, you know, the remaining of my life. And, um, you know, just knowing that, you know, the duration is is, is what's most important. Uh, you know, I really buckled down and tried to learn as much as I could. But, you know, it's unfortunate that we don't. I think the NFL does a great job of um, providing seminars and, and workshops for guys um, who don't have the knowledge about, you know, money and how to spend it and how to save it. Um, they really give you a guideline that you can follow that can help you, you know, in the process. So, yeah, they do their rookie orientation, but I guess it sounds like your advice to some young athletes who come into money is kind of what you said at Sports PR Summit. Surround yourself with a team of people who 
are the experts and, and who can help you in those areas where you may need some help, right? Yeah, you got to surround yourself with the right people, um, people who know way more than you. Um, and that don't necessarily make you, um, you know, incompetent. You know, it's it's a learning process. It actually, it's actually uh, better for you and, and your understanding. Um, when you surround yourself with smart people, you become smarter as well. And you don't have to always get the credit for everything. You know, you know they have, um, you know, certain abilities and capabilities to do things uh, that make them great in their own right. And you know, it comes around full circle. So, you know. That's the most important thing, and it's hard because you you have to build trust in people. And you know, if you can build that trust, you know, find two or three, you know, uh, people in your life that you know you can call on anytime. You can ask a question without feeling like you you know you sounded dumb or you just don't know. You know, and you put your pride to the side, then you know that's that's growth. That's how that's how you make it. You know, in any profession, I think. No, I totally agree. And, and, but the hard thing is, is, is trying to figure out who you can trust. Like I see a lot of athletes who gravitate towards family members to help them with things because they can trust them. But then those family members may not have the education or skills in a certain area, like accounting or tax yeah. law or, or things like that. So yeah. that's the tough thing. Yeah. And, and you're probably looking at, you know, 10%, you know, the athletes who, who go pro, who, you know, come from families and backgrounds who have that knowledge, um, you know, and, and it's, it's not to use it as an excuse, you know, it's just the way the world is and it's just, you know, what some people are, are born into, but, you know, I think that's, you know, what makes this world so great, you know, you, you have people in place who, who really care and this is not for you to know everything because you'll never know it all. The minute you start to think that you know it all, is the minute that, you know, things will, you know, take a turn for the worse. So, you know, I think you always got to approach it with with the open mind and, and you know, not always use family because sometimes that can be, you know, some of the worst case scenarios. But, you know, I think over time as, as you grow as as a person, you know, you learn more, you know, and I, I'm, I'm the type of guy I, I look at my – my career and where I'm at now and saying if I could go back and, and be the person that I am now 10 years ago when I first got in the league then you, know, you would have to look out um, because I was you know it, it was the sky would be the limit you know so I just try to you know move forward and, and not look not look back everything is hindsight and, and um, you know just try to educate as many kids as I can because you know they're going to be in the same positions that, that I'm in um, you know, 10, 12 years from now. Now, I, but I wonder, and you kind of talked about this at the event, you know, if you didn't go through what you've gone through, you spent 554 nights in prison and you've gone through some things that I think have made you a better person. And again, I commend you, Michael, because you have made the most of your second chance. You've been candid. You've been honest. You've helped people since you've gotten out of prison. But when you were in prison that first night, I mean, here's a guy, you were on top of the world in the NFL, you had endorsement deals with Nike. When you were in prison night one and you're laying in bed, what's going through your mind? You know, night one, you just feel like you let, you think about the people that you let down. Um, 
but most importantly, it's all about building and strengthening yourself. You know, there's it's no way to describe, um, you know, that feeling. Um, you know, I think it's a personal feeling. It's something that if you don't go through it, you never know. Um, and the emotions really run deep. Um, so, you know, whether it was night one or night, you know, 300, they were all the same. Um, it's just that, you know, when, you know, when I was 10 months in, I was just a stronger person. Um, not saying that I was, you know, built for, um, the duration of my sentence, but, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a very, um, a strong person, you know, mentally and physically. So, you know, I know how to adjust. I was able to adapt, but man, the the pain and that, you know, I inflicted not only on myself, but on my family probably, um, is what, you know, kind of helped me deteriorate in, in, in so many ways. Um, so, but I had to, I had to stay strong. I had to, you know, walk around, even though, you know, I was down on the inside, I had to have a smile on my face each and every day. Um, and that's just this, you know, create positive energy. And so I felt that, and, you know, the people around me helped me. But, yeah, man, it's, it's no joke. You know, I don't wish that on anybody, and um, especially coming, you know, from what I came from, you know. So that's what made it even more difficult. Yeah, again, I have such respect for you. I know there were a few people that were a big part of your life when you got out and of making sure that you got – that second chance to come back to the NFL and, and to build your life again. And, you know, I heard you talk at Sports PR Summit about Roger Goodell, Tony Dungy, and Andy Reid. Maybe you can just talk for a couple of minutes about what each of them meant to your road back to redemption that you are experiencing now. Well, just to sum it up, um, I think for each individual guy, I can tell you about five or six different things that they did. Uh, I won't bore you, you know, or the audience with that, but just in, a, in a nutshell, it was it was a collective effort, um, and at the end of the day, I had to be all in uh, and committed. Um, the things that I promised um, when I visited Tony um, while incarcerated, um, I had to make good on those promises. Uh, I didn't see Roger until I came home. Um, you know, Arthur Blank flew out to my house in, in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, we sat and talked. Uh, my agent, uh, Joe Siegel, uh, he was there uh, just playing point guard, you know, trying to, you know, round everybody and get everybody together um, just so we can all be on the same page. And, you know, they all told me, you know, you got one shot and, and that's it, you know, sticking our neck out for you. Um, don't let us down. And, there still were some situations that happened where, you know, it wasn't all good, and they still stuck by me through it all. Um, not not to say that, you know, my excuses wasn't valid, um, because in some situations I I was still young, and you know I wasn't, um, you know, making the right decision. Still didn't have the right people around me, and it took one more incident to happen for me to really change and. Um, you know, once I once I did that, once I committed to them, there was no turning back. Once Andy grabbed me and brought me to Philly, uh, I had to be 100% committed to him and, and, you know, his philosophy to the franchise and to my role on the team. So Roger was constantly checking in. Um, my agent, he was calling, you know, three or four times a week. Uh, Coach Dungy, he kind of let me, you know, go off and do my thing. He didn't, 
you know, he didn't bother me. My word was my word, and he trusted me. And uh, I think just knowing that I couldn't let those guys down, you know, kept me grounded and kept me focused. One of the things you did that sent a huge message to not only them, but to a lot of people is, so you get out and you're going through bankruptcy. And you owed a lot of money, including to the Falcons. You could have gone the easy route and filed Chapter 7 and had a lot of those debts go away. But you chose to file Chapter 11 and you paid back the millions of dollars. What led you to take the harder road? Because, Michael, a lot of people would have just said, you know what, I'm taking the easy way. And, and you know, I've had a rough last few years. I'm, I'm going to go that route. Well, I believe God has a plan for everyone, and, you know, everyone's life is going to be different. There's no similarities. Uh, you might go through the same things that another person go through. Uh, you know, there's millions of people who filed bankruptcy, um, you know, throughout the, you know, you know, this world. And, you know, even in a lifetime, you know, you go through so much money, and you, you feel like, you know, you learn. You learn how to spend it. You learn how to save it. And I just knew, you know, God had a purpose for my life. It'll be an opportunity for me to, you know, pay back the people that I owe and, you know, still have some money, you know, left over for myself and my family. So, you know, it was a big decision to make, you know, as far as, you know, Chapter 7, Chapter 11, 13, whatever made the most sense. You know, I was just like, listen, if I get another chance to step back on the field and, you know, get a chance to take another snap, then I can go back and do it all over again. And I told my wife that on various occasions, you know, all I need is another opportunity. And, listen, even the people on my bankruptcy didn't expect to get paid all that money back. You know, it's by the grace of God they got paid all that money back. Uh, so, you know, I'm just thankful that, that I still had the ability to still had the the, the competence to go out and execute Andy Reid's offense, which was tough, and win games and have fun, you know, and, you know, make the city of Philadelphia happy, you know, for a short period of time. It seemed like you always had fun when you were on the field at Virginia Tech and with the Atlanta Falcons, but I'd be lying if I said when I watched you play with Philadelphia, you seemed to have a joy that maybe was at a different level. Did you appreciate playing in the NFL and just being back on a football field in a different way post-prison than you did before? Yeah, every time I stepped on the field in Philadelphia, it just felt like a dream come true. Um, and, you know, I just wanted the game not to be 60 minutes. I wish it was 80 minutes. You know, I wish they were longer. You know, I enjoyed the preparation throughout the week. Um, you know, being with my teammates, um, spending more time with them, uh, getting to know them. Um, not necessarily hanging out with my boys and my friends all the time, you know, spending time with the guys who sacrificed as much as me. And uh, it really changed the way I felt about the game of football. Um, I think those experiences now, you know, will have a long, everlasting impact on the way I feel about the game of football and the people uh, who I was around at the time. And, you know, my love for the game grew stronger, and that's why, you know, being an analyst is, is you know, extremely uh, gratifying. It's important. I love talking about the game. I love being around the game. I still love playing the game, not getting tackled, but, um, <laughs> you know, just watching. You know, every Sunday feels like a Sunday when I was younger, when I was playing. And, 
you know, it's those moments, you know, being in Philadelphia really changed me, you know, just as a person, not as a football player. One more thing before we get into some of the things that you're doing now. The other area where I have huge respect for you is you didn't just get out and say, I'm going to do things with the Humane Society and I'm going to you know, do all these things and then not do them. You didn't just get out and say those things to placate people. You have saved hundreds of animals' lives since you were released from prison. You've worked with the Humane Society. You publicly supported the Animal Fighting Spectator Prohibition Act which makes it a federal crime to attend an organized animal fight. That was signed into law by President Obama in February 2014. So you came out and you've really impacted some laws and some things to help animals, and that's got to make you feel good. And, and again, to someone like myself, I look at that and go, he's walking the walk. Yeah, it was great, man, to to be able to be involved in in, in politics and and help change laws uh, pertaining to you know, animal welfare was something that I didn't set out to do um, when when I was in prison. But, you know, I always wanted to, you know, help more animals than I hurt. So um, I felt like when, when that happened and I went to Capitol Hill, it was really taking a big step. Uh, it, was a really, uh, it was really a great opportunity for me to, um, you know, be on the center stage and say, okay, you know, this is an opportunity to make change, not for the rest of the world, um, you know, and, and not only for myself, you know, but, you know, for the people who believed in me. And we worked really, really hard to pass those laws and get them pushed through, you know, through Congress and, and you know, to get them signed off by President Obama. Uh, and, and, it, and it happened. And, you know, even when that happened, I, you know, I, I could have been complacent and, and, you know, been satisfied. But, you know, just don't stop there. I think, you know, in life, you know, just the lifetime of, of, of memories and the things that, that you can be impactful in, um, you know, always be memories that you can, you can have and take to the bank. And, you know, those are things that I'm extremely proud of, um, you know, more so than, than, than scoring a touchdown or throwing a touchdown pass. You know, the things that I, you know, that I was, you know, really passionate about, I was able to get accomplished and, once again, it wasn't, you know, by myself. It was through the help of Wayne Pacelli from the, the president of the Humane Society and, and, you know, all the people who supported me at that time. But they really helped me, um, you know, accomplish that dream and making that happen. And, you know, like I said, that's something I can I can take to the grave with. Now, it's amazing. And, and you should be very, very proud of that. So on June 12th, 2017, you retired as an Atlanta Falcon. You now are doing a number of things. Uh, one is, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you're wa- working with Fox Sports as an NFL analyst. You're actually working with one of my close friends, Colin Cowherd, who I've known for a, a <laughs> long time. <laughs> He's a funny dude, isn't he? Yes, he is. Very smart, funny dude, too. Yeah, very smart. And he seems to really like you, too. So uh, that's great. But, you know, you said at our event, and it's true, you've got all this knowledge bottled up inside of you. It's great that you're able to share it with an audience now. Yeah, I think, man, being able to sit, you know, next to Colin and next to Tony and, and you know, Carissa and, you know, Coach, we, you know, we developed a bond that, you know, that I think will last a lifetime. And, uh, you know, we put a lot of hard work into to last season. Man, we had great ratings and, you know, we had fun and, and being able to share insight or, 
you know, on the game of football, the quarterback position, you know, learning so much, you know, offensively, defensively, uh, is is nothing that I haven't seen before. And, you know, it's almost like a gift to know exactly what's going on on the field um, without even having to play it. And, you know, I love the game so much. I, just, I watch it, you know, day in and day out throughout the season, you know, um, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, um, and even catch up on some college football too. But, yeah, man, just to be able to do that was a blessing. Um, always wanted to do it, but didn't see it coming last year. And it, it happened really, really fast, and I was kind of thrown into the fire. But, you know, just the cast helped me grow more more comfortable as the year went on. And, you know, hopefully that is something that I can do for, for a long time because I, I really enjoy doing it. Yeah, and you're good at it. And and I like, you can tell when people have a chemistry, and you guys definitely have a good chemistry. So I hope that team is able to uh, stay together. Something else you're doing, American Flag Football League starts June 30th. Uh, they're going to air live on the NFL Network. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to try and catch Michael Vick playing flag football, though. Yeah, well, you know what, man? I won't run around as much as I did when I played. Um, you know, I'm going to just show everybody that I still got the cannon. Still throw the football around. You know, I, I trained my daughter. She's a flag football quarterback. Um, so she helped me keep my arm in shape. I help her keep her arm in shape. And, you know, I'm going to show her how to play the game. And so I'm looking forward to it, man. It's just another way to stay in shape, still work out, you know, as much as I can. You know, play more golf than I do working out. But, um, yeah, just – having a chance to go and play flag football, you know, two or three times out of the year, man, um, you know, still still keeps me around the game, you know, and, and even working with the AAF, you know, Alliance for American Football, you know, being able to coach it too, man. I, I got, you know, I got it all, I got a three and one, you know, so I get to enjoy football all the way across the board. That's great. And with uh, the AAF, isn't uh, Brad Childress is the head coach there, right? Yeah, Brad Childress is the head coach and, He's going to do a phenomenal job. He's facilitating everything right now. We're getting, you know, our coaching staff in place, and you know, we'll start getting our players together, round it up really, really soon. And uh, you know, we're looking forward to going and, and winning the championship. You know, that, that's the only reason why we're in it. So that season kicks off February ninth, twenty nineteen. What do you think of some of these? So you know, NFL is king. But you've got the leagues that you're a part of. The XFL has popped up. What do you think about some of these other leagues that are popping up in, in competition with the NFL? Well, I don't think it's, it's competition with the NFL. Um, I don't think any league will ever be able to compare to the National Football League. You think about the history. You know, they've come a long way um, just in the years passing. So, you know, the NFL will always be, you know, top echelon. Um the AAF will be a complimentary league to the NFL. Uh, obviously, yeah, guys will, will be able to play, and hopefully they play well and be able to move on to the NFL. That's the, that's the goal. And I think the NFL will accept them. It, it's just another opportunity for them to gain more experience and uh, get more snaps, you know, what, without having to go elsewhere. So we want this to be a complimentary league where these guys, um, you know, they play well. You know, they have a chance to fulfill their dream. And, um, you know, if they do, then we'll be the first to congratulate them. So you're 37 now. I saw you do an interview recently, and you said you can still do a 4-5 in the 40. True? 
Yeah, I'll be blowing smoke when I say that, man. I don't know. You know, I had ankle surgery last year, but I tell you what, if I got in shape, you know, the sky's the limit on what I could do. Um, yeah, my wife's looking at me right now like, yeah, right. But listen, I can do whatever I put my mind to, and I, I'm going to stand by that. Well, you have certainly shown that. How's your golf game? Golf game's pretty good, man. I, um, you know, I want to be a 70s golfer consistently, but, you know, as of right now, everything's like 80, between 80 and 85. So, you know, I know I know what the problem is, you know, in, in any sport, you got to practice, and I don't practice enough. So, you know, I just think I can go out and hit it and, and, and play well, but that's not the case because every golf course requires a different shot. And it allows you to, and you have to think differently. So that's part of the challenge, man. But that's what keeps me going. But that's what keeps me competitive right now. That's fun. Uh, a few other things you're doing. You've got your V7 clothing, v7clothing.com. I know you're working with traditions. You've got a line of V7 clothing in partnership with Virginia Tech. Tell us about that yeah. line. Uh, uh, V7 clothing is, is something that. You know, we're taking one step at a time. Um, you know, we want to make it exclusive. We want to continue to grow. I think, you know, getting the opportunity to develop an account with Virginia Tech uh, was something that was never done before by a player and, and uh, a collegiate program. So I think we broke a barrier with that. Um, but just looking forward to expanding the brand, you know, moving slow, not taking it, you know, not trying to do it all in one day or, or, or one month. Um you know, we want to gradually pace ourselves and make sure that we're doing it right, not stepping on anyone's toes. I'm still, uh, you know, connected with, with, with Nike. Um, and, you know, that partnership is a partnership, I think, that'll last for a lifetime. But they gave me the liberty to, to go out and, uh, you know, grow V7. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited as far as, you know, where I'm at now and the team that I've been able to develop um, to go out and execute. And make V7 product, um, you know, a really, really good product. So I'm thankful that Virginia Tech got on board. Um, There's nothing that I wouldn't do for them, and there's nothing that they wouldn't do for me. So uh, they helped kickstart it, and I'm excited about the partnership. So V7Clothing.com, another friend that we share mutually. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, headquarters where Nike is. And Ralph Green is a good friend of mine. And I know you and Ralph uh, yeah. go way back, too. So uh, Ralph was excited to see you at my event a few weeks ago in uh, in New York and uh, said, hey, you got my guy there. So it's uh, cool. I know that you and Ralph have a good relationship. Uh, your team, yeah, Vic, found do. it. Team Vic Foundation. I know you're relaunching that too. I know your work in the community is a big part of what you do and, and a big part of your legacy. And I know you have kids now. So, what is Team Vic going to be doing in, in the future? Well, the same thing that I've been doing um, the last three or four years without uh, the foundation being established. We had the Team Vic Foundation, and we we uh, did some minor community events and. You know, made some minor donations back then, but I'm really looking forward to taking Team Vic Foundation to the next level. Um, and primarily, you know, not only working all across the world, but, um, you know, in Virginia, where, where, where my hometown, where I'm from, um, Atlanta, you know, where I got roots, and Philadelphia, where I got roots, and, you know, and, and working in cities where, you know, we feel like we can, we can have a major impact. Uh, just on helping, you know, not only young kids, but people in general, 
um, you know, dream their dream, uh, get opportunities that they thought they would never have. And, uh, you know, we're going to work tirelessly to try to, you know, get as many people involved, as many donations as we can, give out as much money as we can, and uh, help make an impact in the community. And, you know, I've been doing it for the last three or four years with my camps and just, uh, you know, really giving back. So, you know, why not establish it, make it big and make it grow? Uh, something that, you know, my kids can, you know, be a part of, you know, for a lifetime. And maybe they'll be running my foundation one day, you know, when I'm when, when I'm dead and gone. So that leads to my last question. When it's all said and done, you've been through a lot. You're 37. You've been through a lot. When it's all said and done, how do you want people to remember Michael Vick? I'll let them decide on that. You know, I, I don't know how people will perceive me based on a couple of different situations and scenarios that took place in my life. Um, I won't use my background and my upbringing as an excuse. Um, you know, just judge me based on my character, based on, um, you know, what you see. You know, um, a lot of people would probably never get to know me. They'll probably hear me talking in interviews and see me on Fox on Sundays and, you know, coaching with the AAF and playing with the AAFL, you know, but, um, you know, just judge me based on my character, based on what you see, um, and, and, and not on, you know, not on, you know, one or two uh, different situations that may have happened that could, you know, that were a detriment, you know, to my life. Um, you know, I grew from it and, um, you know, I, I think, you know, just, um, you know, growing and, and being able to put that behind me and move forward, you know, with the help of my, my family and the people around me, um, really made me the person I am today. But, you know, I'm only 37, I turned 38 this month and, you know, still got a lot of life to live. So we won't stop. So they probably won't be making that assumption or the determination on how they're going to perceive me for a lot of years to come. So I got a lot of work to do. So let me put the work in in between. Well, Michael, I got to tell you, your comeback is one of the great stories I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I had not met you until, you know, a few weeks ago. I had heard lots of different things and you're the real deal and you're genuine and you're no, you're you're I would vouch for you for anything. I really think your ability to be reflective and to own your past and to walk the walk and do better going forward. It's unlike many things I've seen in my life. So uh, congratulations to you. I- I'm glad that you're surrounded with really good people now. Latanya is fantastic. And uh, she's awesome. Yeah, I-, I just think you're you're doing great things. Uh, have fun with my buddy Colin Coward and doing all your things with football. And, uh, you know, I don't know you, but I'm going to say I'm proud of you. I-, I think you've done a really nice job with everything. And uh, I hope we get to cross paths again in the future. Yeah, I hope so, man. You got my number. If you ever think I'm slipping and not doing it right, <laughs> give me a call. All <laughs> right. That's Michael Vick. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This edition of Sports Business Radio is presented by Roan. They're our new official menswear partner. I absolutely love their clothing. I wear it every day. Some of the things in my closet right now, I've got the commuter pant. I've got the commuter long sleeve shirt. I've been wearing the golf shirt, uh, the spar jogger pants. I never want to take them off. If I could just wear those pants every day, I would do that. 
Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. They've really figured this out. You know, Roan definitely is my favorite company that I've ever worked with as far as menswear is concerned. And I think you'd love their clothing too. So here's the deal for Sports Business Radio listeners. Go to Roan.com. That's R-H-O-N-E.com. Enter the promo code SBR20, like Sports Business Radio 20. SBR20 at checkout, you're going to save 20% off your purchase. That's roan.com and enter promo code SBR20 at checkout. Now, here's Brian's interview with Eddie George from January 2021. Eddie George is my guest. Nine seasons with the NFL's Tennessee Titans. He's the Titans' all time leading rusher. He's the NFL rookie of the year in 1996, 1995, Heisman Trophy winner at Ohio State. He starred on Broadway, played Billy Flynn in the play Chicago. He starred in one of my favorite shows on HBO, Baller, with The Rock. He actually had a fight scene with The Rock. We'll ask him about that. And he earned his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You can find him on Twitter at EddieGeorge2727. Eddie, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I, I deeply apologize about the snafu. I promise you I'm not 30 minutes late. <laughs> it was a problem. I, I appreciate everybody. Hopefully we're patient with everything. Uh, thank you for having me on. You know, it's, it's an honor. Uh, my brother Tiki Barber, uh, who's played the NFL as well, who has maybe four yards in terms of career yards more than me. He always uh. teases that. He's uh, also a Broadway star. He's a superstar. He should be. Should, he's probably already done this already, but it's always good to see my man and uh, be, be willing to share my story with you guys. So you look great. You look like you could still play. I think, A, you need to suit up so that you can get in front of Tiki on the all-time leading rush list. But you're a big yogi, aren't you? You know, I've been doing yoga uh, since 1997. And um, I still have trouble getting into a down dog, you know, my lower back, all of that. That's, but I've, uh, I've always um, uh, enjoyed looking outside the um, regular scope of things in terms of how you typically work out with just lifting and running. Um, I was always big into um, the complete person, body, mind, and the spirit. And uh, yoga allows me to get into that. Now, I have to be completely honest with you. When I began yoga, it was for different reasons. I mean, there were some really good-looking girls in there with yoga fans. <laughs> and, and my teammates used to tease me, saying, oh, Eddie, you know, oh, you're doing yoga. It's such a girly thing. I was like, hey, don't come. I'm, I'm good. I, with me and about 20 other women. So <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. But when they caught on, that's when they uh, started hating on my game a little bit with the ladies. So, uh, But, no, nah, yoga's been um, – I still practice. I still do it. Um, it helps me with uh, the daily stresses of life. Um, and uh, I think a lot of other athletes have embraced uh, that as a practice. I watched LeBron last night. Season mm-hmm. 18, 46 points, almost has a triple-double. Like, this guy is a, a human marvel. And I look at some of the athletes like him and how they keep themselves in peak physical condition now that allows them to play this long. Tom Brady, 43 years old, going to be playing in the Super Bowl. Was it that way when you were playing, or have things gotten better where it's allowed athletes to play longer now? 
You know, it's funny you say that because um, I've been going to like the hyperbaric chamber, cryotherapy, uh, compression, um, all of that stuff within like the last week, just working on trying to stay, stay healthy and try to feel good, just getting out of bed. And um, that none of that stuff was around. All we had was an ice tub that you had to share with, with like, two other guys. I mean, you had to schedule an appointment to get into the ice tub. It was only one. Um, but it's truly remarkable that now guys are really looking at their bodies as their, um, their craft, but also longevity for their careers to play a very long time. Um, when I first got to the league, you know, we had, I had to eat uh, differently. Um, I used to eat fast food and um, guys would smoke at halftime and drink beers at halftime. Well, now, you know, you're getting IVs and you're uh, getting your hyperbaric chambers. Um, you're getting your adequate rest, um, plant-based diets. You know, none of that stuff was ever heard of uh, back in the early 90s. And um, early 90s, 2000. And now, you know, with uh, technology and innovation and how guys are uh, recovering better and training differently, um, they're able to sustain uh, longer careers, and the rules of the game has changed for both basketball and football is not as physical. So uh, you're able to play longer, more effectively, and have more production because of that. Um, but it is, it is uh, remarkable that LeBron and Tom Brady um, and a lot of athletes are having longer, successful careers at the top of their game. Yeah. All right, I want to go back to the beginning for you. You're a Philly guy. How does a Philly guy wind up at Ohio State? Why not Penn State, Pitt? You know, you have some good schools in Pennsylvania. How do you get to Ohio State? Well, I, um, I wanted to, to go to Penn State and play running back. Uh, but long story short, I wasn't a very good student in high school. Uh, my mom sent me to uh, Fork U Military Academy in Virginia, uh, my 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 junior year and I went there for um uh two years my high school year and a postgraduate year and I got I've done it up there obviously to get uh, attention from Ohio State and they were on the only school that promised to let me play running back or at least compete at running back uh they might have been lying at the time but <laughs> you know it was just something about um the the, the tradition of players um, I, I love the locker room. Uh, I love the, my, my teammates at the time. I had a good uh, feeling about them. Um, they, they pushed me to really dig deep in myself to, 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 be my, to reach my maximum potential. Um, so when I walked on the campus, I just knew it. it. It wasn't anything where they promised me a jersey number or uh, the world or a starting position. I just wanted to compete. And um, they said, hey, you know, if you, if you come, you're not going to start probably, but you have a chance to compete at running back, and that's all I wanted. Was John Cooper your coach there? Yes, he was. John Cooper, yep. And what kind of a coach was he? I mean, he had a lot of success. You guys had a lot of success there, but he seems like he would have been a, a fun coach to play for. Yeah, Cooper was, uh, was a, you know, he, he was later in his career. And he um, was, he had everything mapped out. You know, you know he was like the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And um, he was an awesome recruiter. Um, 
got a lot of talent to come to Ohio State. And, you know, we, he was uh, and still is a, um, a fabulous motivator. Uh, he knew how to, to motivate us and get us ready for games and um, genuinely interested in you as a person. So he never really coached the player. He really coached the person. And um, it was a lot of fun playing for him. It seems like all past Ohio State athletes, whether it's football, basketball, anything, Buckeye Nation is a tight-knit group. You still keep in contact with everyone. And I saw when they played in the, in the championship against Alabama, you, you were very vocal about uh, how you thought they were going to do. Yeah, I, I still keep up with them. In fact, right now I'm in Florida with two of my, my former teammates, Raymond Harris and Joey Galloway playing golf and, and doing what guys do. Uh, so we're actually here right now doing this. So we, we really stick together. Uh, the guys I played with, the guys that were before me and certainly after me, we try to um, keep a, a network going and try to be bridge builders, if you will, to show them some of the pitfalls, the mistakes that we might have made, um, the successes that we've had. Uh, just a blueprint on to be successful during your playing days and certainly after your playing days because what you buy into is that once you're a Buckeye, you're a Buckeye for life. And there's a responsibility to pass that torch on to the next generation. How's your golf game there in Florida? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Why? What do you, I mean, come on. What do you need to work on? Everything? You're like me or? What I need to work on? Uh, maybe I should just work on throwing these clubs out the door. Oh. <laughs> no, but I'm working on uh, everything, putting, chipping, um, my, my swing with my, my irons. Right now, focusing on shallowing my club versus coming over the top like, a, like slamming the ball. So I'm trying to shallow it. And um, it's, it's a, a, a very daunting and hard sport to to take on later in life but i really never played golf um during my playing days it's something i picked up relatively um recent you know the last few years and you have a new appreciation for the sport have a new appreciation for tiger woods and all of the championships that he has won it's hard to win one let alone 15 16 or however many he's won so far so it, it is a gentleman's game. It's a wonderful game um, and something that I can play hopefully until I'm about 127 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So, all right, let's go back to 1995. Uh, Heisman Trophy ceremony. You and Tommy Frazier from Nebraska are the two favorites for the Heisman, one of the closest Heisman votes ever. When you're in that room and you've got to speak in front of everyone, and you see the past Heisman Trophy winners, who were you most excited to see in the room, and, and how nerve-wracking was that? It was uh, very nerve-wracking, um, but it was also a, an accomplishment to get in the room. One is an accomplishment. Yes. Make yeah. about it. He failed to mention that Danny Warfel was also in the room, who was the next year's Heisman winner, 96. Hmm. And uh, Donnell Autry from Northwestern and Troy Davis who rushed for uh, 2,000 yards back-to-back at Iowa State. So it was some really good football players in that room that night and not to mention Tony Dorsett who was uh, a great 
uh, running back for University of Pittsburgh. He played at Dallas so many years, and I grew up watching him. Earl Campbell, Mike Rozier, Archie Griffin, uh, Marcus Allen, Tim Brown. I mean, the list goes on and on. And this was at the downtown athletic club of the old deck where they had a, a room, a banquet room, all of the portraits, painted portraits of each Heisman winner uh, that was back that was backlit uh, on the walls, on the oak walls. And when you walked in the room, you got a sense like, ooh, this is this is different. This is special. And um, so it was really an overwhelming, uh, int intimidating environment for me, but uh, one that uh, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Was it was there someone in that room that you really wanted to meet that night? You mentioned Tony Dorsett, Earl Campbell, some of these guys that came before you, Mike Rozier, is there someone who you really wanted to say hello to that night? Well, you know, it's it's such a, a different, the, the, when you're up for the Heisman and you're in the room and you're a candidate, you're not necessarily focused on meeting someone. You're in essence like, I hope I win the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. you're, it's like going on stage or you're going um, before the world and, and you're not really thinking about, well, uh, who's in the room that I can meet because the pressure is there to, to, to win it. And you, you're on pins and needles. There's a lot of anticipation that you have to manage. Um, so I really wasn't thinking about that. Uh, but after I won the award, I was like, well, who's in the room? I was like, you know, once I was able to breathe a little bit. How did winning the Heisman change your life? Oh, it changed my life for the better. Um, obviously I think it's, it's um, it's you're never for, for, forgotten. You're always remembered. Your your legacy is forever cemented. Um, it um, it gets better with time. Um, you really appreciate um, all the doors, the opportunities, the people that you have an opportunity to meet um, in your life. Your life walk as a Heisman Trophy winner. Um, you're in a an elite group of, of men that, that share the same award as you. So it, um, it's changed my life for a lot of great reasons because I can do things now and go places that people always know that I won the Heisman forever uh, linked to that uh, for the rest of my life. I want to get your thoughts on the state of college football right now, specifically this last year. Um, we're in a pandemic. There were a lot of people that thought maybe we shouldn't be playing football. There were a lot of teams that got COVID and you know, some of the players were okay. And, and some had complications of, of having COVID, but I thought, and a lot of other people have thought if there was ever a year where the college athlete was turned into an essential worker in order to keep the money from the TV yeah. contracts and, you know, the millions of dollars that are related to college sports, this was that year. What did you think about playing this season? And I'm sure even dating back to when you played, there's been talk of college athletes being paid and getting what you're worth while the sport is making lots and lots of money. What are your thoughts on all of that? Um, well, for one, uh, you have to commend each and every athlete, um, staff, coaches, um, everyone involved in putting on a season this year for college sports. Um, it was very difficult trying. Uh, you had to be uh, relatively uh, flexible 
nimble, agile with your schedule, understanding, because COVID was the biggest opponent for everyone. Um, it wasn't Alabama. So that being said, um, you know, I think we're moving toward a time when athletes are going to have to be compensated because let's face it, when college football first began, it wasn't intended on becoming a business. It was recreation. But as time moved on, the pop popularity grew around the sport. It became bigger, garnered uh, bigger stages, created uh, huge personalities. There was a lot of interest nationwide, coast to coast, um, about college football. And it became a business. Corporations got involved. So it kind of grew. But what didn't grow along with that was the, um, the athlete, the appeal for the athlete and the, the care for the athlete, you know, uh, was looked upon that, hey, you know, your education is the compensation for you to, um, uh, to play football or basketball, whatever it is. But along those lines, it became a billion dollar business over time. And again, the athlete was still ignored and not included in that. The athletes drive revenue. We know that in college sports, there's a four-year window, and then you're your turnover, you, you're your throughput, and you're out, and it's another level. But I think there's enough room. Um, there's uh, certainly some smart people out there that can figure out a way where athletes can be compensated. It may not be in terms of a paycheck as an employee, but they have to be allowed to uh, make money on their likeness or be able to sell things or with their name on. And they've been doing it um, when I was playing, before I was playing, certainly after. So why not bring it to the forefront, realize it is what it is, build a business model around it that appeases everyone and, um, and go, go in that regard. So, you know, we're at that place now where athletes are no longer in the dark about how much these universities are making on their backs. Um, and I think it's apparent that, hey, you know, they, they need to be allowed to do something. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that the NCAA hasn't, they have an opportunity to say, how can we make this work instead of saying, hey, you know, we're still going to live by the rules of 1950, you know, that education is the compensation and they should be grateful and thankful and they're making millions and excuse me, billions of dollars on these athletes back with TV contracts, added games, um, the playoffs. And if the playoffs expand to, to more teams, guess what? That means more money. So there, there, there has to be a way you, you compensate these kids because the coaches are taking advantage of it with million dollar contracts. They're getting paid eight, nine, $10 million a year to coach these kids, you know, barely have enough money uh, to, to pay their rent on time. Um, so, you know, something needs to be done. I completely agree with you. As far as the college football playoff goes, are you happy with how it is now? Do you think it needs to expand? If I put you in charge of that, how does that need to look? Um, I, I, think, I think we figured out this during COVID, which is, can be a blessing is that, um, College football can, is, can be flexible. I don't think you have to schedule out um, years and years in advance to uh, schedule these games out to, to get logistics down. I think now, you know, when we, we saw what BYU was able to do with Coastal Carolina, 
uh, able to do in 72 hours and put on a wonderful performance, um, it's possible that we can expand to an eight game, or some people think a 16. I think eight's the number uh, that, that uh, eight game, 18 playoff. Um, now it's just a matter of, you know, putting numbers around it, the business model around it that makes sense for everybody. Um, but I, I certainly believe, you know, you can be very creative now with Power Five conferences uh, and the other five conferences in terms of how that looks from year to year. You can have, you can mimic what NCAA has done with the ACC versus Big Ten, you know, one year or the ACC versus Pac-12. And your non-conference games can look like that with one game um, from one of the smaller uh, schools. So there's enough there um, for people to, for the powers that be, to be uh, innovative, uh, before thinking and creative, um, to put the best product out there that can not only serve our student athletes, but certainly college football lovers and uh, everyone involved. You played running back. Uh, I watched Derrick Henry now play running back for Tennessee. Uh, what a big dude that guy is. How has the running back position changed since when you played? Uh, well, they don't emphasize one guy anymore like they used to. I think Derek is probably the only back in the NFL that is the, the bell horse running back that they're relying on um, 60% of the time. Now you're seeing more, well, it's always been, but the last few years, a running back by committee, a specialty guy that comes in. Um, you know, you see uh, a lot of teams doing that. Uh, that's how the position has changed. Now the run game is still, is still, you still, you still need to have a running game to win, I believe. But uh, we're not seeing guys, one guy get all the carries and have uh, be a volume runner. He's got to be special to do that. You got to be durable. You have to. Uh, you have the right uh, the right situation, and you got to think about you know Derek is is Derek, but he also had a, a almost a four thousand yard passer uh, and two one thousand yard receivers, not one but two, which means that you're stretching the field and you have space to run. So he's been blessed with a great supporting cast. So, but but certainly the running game is not running back centric now. It's more uh, relegated toward the, the passing attack. Did I see on Twitter or social media somewhere at Malcolm Jenkins's virtual fundraiser that you challenged Ryan Clark to try and tackle Derrick Henry for charity? Is that happening? Yes. Well, I don't think it is. Ryan is not. Uh, <laughs> he, Ryan was talking tough behind the desk. <laughs> <laughs> the cloth that, you know, he's going to get after you. He, he, he threw his body in there on numerous occasions. Uh, you know, without regard for his own or anybody's life. So he's, he's, he's a headhunter for sure. But I just found it interesting that he said, you know, if I was out there, uh, this is what I would do to Derek Henry. I said, well, hell, let's make that happen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that would be good. He was talking on one of the ESPN shows. So I called him out on it. You know, I'm, I'm like the, trying to stir up a little trouble. <laughs> That's good. We always need someone to stir the pot a little bit. All right. Uh, in 2019, the Titans retired your jersey. They retired Steve McNair at the same time, I think, uh, the late Steve McNair. You guys were teammates. What was it like to have your jersey retired by the Titans? 
That was unexpected. Um, I typically, by their rules, no one that you don't get your jersey retired unless you go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Hmm. I guess um, uh, Amy Adams shrunk the, the the owner for the Titans uh, felt the need to bring closure to that that era and pay homage to it. Uh, her father, Bud Adams, um, drafted us. And we were the pioneers to bring NFL football to Middle Tennessee, the Middle Tennessee area, and be successful in our first few years. Um, and she wanted to uh, uh, show us uh, some love in that regard. And that, that felt amazing to, to have my jersey, that number never being worn by anyone. It's never been worn by no one but me in that uniform, in that organization. I mean, and Steve as well. So um, it's uh, it feels good to to be recognized in, in such a way. I love that team with the two of you. Uh, the late Steve McNair, what was it like playing with him? And for maybe some of the younger fans who didn't get to see him play, what type of a player was he? Oh, wow. Um, well, Steve was in college. I was a big fan of Steve. He's a year ahead of me. Uh, he was up for the Heisman. He was throwing for a billion yards at Alcorn film. And he's it looks like he's in the backyard playing with little kids, you know, a plays lasting, you know, a minute and a half, you know, with Steve back there. Right. Moody defenders. And he could run if he wants to, he can take his time, he can check the time on his watch, you know, and then throw the football, throw it 60 yards downfield. It was amazing to watch this guy. So to play with him was an honor. And, and Steve, um, you know, with all the Arabic Nair stuff, you know, he, it was a process for him to reach that level um, uh, during his career. Because when I got there, you know, he was still trying to come under center because everything for him was in the shotgun. And he was getting the ball out fast and throwing it to athletes. Well, now you're in a run-controlled offense. And he has to hand the ball off and do off a play action. So he had to alter his game. So he came up to speed with the pro game and became uh, Eric McNair. So he had to endure a lot of um, a lot of hardship, adversity, doubt. Uh, what people were saying about him, he was a bust. He wasn't a great quarterback. He can't throw, do all this stuff. And, and that played on him. And he, and he played uh, with his heart on his sleeve. So, um, you know, Steve was um, – was an awesome, awesome man, and um, uh, we miss him every day. Yeah, like you said, uh, you know, just he, he kind of to me was like a little bit like Patrick Mahomes before Patrick Mahomes. Like, just there, there was so much going on, and he just everything was in slow motion for him, and he just had a cannon for an arm. And you know, I think he was bigger than Mahomes, but uh, he was kind of like Mahomes before Mahomes. Yeah, I mean, he, he could elude defenders. He could throw it these type of way. In fact, Steve, I think, was uh, a pretty damn good baseball player, too. So, you know, he, he developed into, God, uh, one hell of a quarterback. You know, one that won an MVP and uh, three Pro Bowls. Um, and and the, the numbers don't, don't really, really reflect his, his greatness and what he meant to uh, – our team and our city and and um, uh, and our community. So he he's he's vastly underrated, and I think he should be in the NFL Hall of Fame at some point in time. 
Yeah, I would agree. All right, I want to discuss your your post football career. When I had you on Sports Business Radio before, I don't know if you remember that, but you told me about the three E's, and mm. you said the three E's helped you with your transition to post career. Share with us what the three E's are. Yeah, three E's are entrepreneurship, entertainment, and education. Um, in my education, I went back, got my master's in business. My bit in business uh, since then. Uh, I've been teaching, well, I was teaching at the Ohio State University, the Bishop School of Business, the business of professional sports, um, delving into our life in totality, the people you come across, the contracts, the bad business deals, the um, uh, things that you want to experience off the field, um, dealing with family members, girlfriends, uh, divorce, child support, <laughs> all the things that can drive an athlete to go broke uh, financially and, and spiritually speaking. Um, under the entrepreneurship umbrella, it's been um, my businesses. My core business is my wealth management business. And it goes back to an experience I had as an athlete where my first uh, financial advisor almost walked away with my entire signing bonus. So I wanted to jump into the business um, to, to enlighten young men, but also to set up the proper infrastructure that they should have when it comes to wealth management. Um, and entertainment, and, and this lends to my career. They talked about the Heisman and how it's opened up doors. Well, it doesn't open up to a, a regular life or a nine to five. It, it all opens up to a slew of things. I've done commercials, I've been on stage, I've, I've been behind the camera, in front of the camera, and I've enjoyed telling stories. And in, in, in life, and in, in no matter what posi- uh, profession that you're in or what you call yourself, you're always telling a story, always telling a story. If you're a doctor, lawyer, um, actor, uh, businessman, salesman, you're selling something. So it, it's really helped me in that regard. And I, I've enjoyed telling stories in matter what medium. So um, that's in a nutshell. You know, from a 60,000 foot perspective, that's, that's what the three E's are. Well, two things I want to follow up on. One, that class that you're teaching at Ohio State, I think should be a required class in every athletic department in America, right? right. Like, those are life skills, especially for athletes that they're not usually taught until they go into a locker room at the pro level. And I think that's too late. Uh, the other is, you know, you've been Billy Flynn in the Broadway play Chicago. That's got to be a different kind of, of nervousness compared to playing on the football field. You got to memorize lines. You got to perform. I mean, it is live theater right now. What's that like? It was, it's the same. The same nerves you experience in an athletic setting are the same nerves you experience on the, the, underneath the lights of a stage. It's the exact same. Uh, but it's channeled differently and it's approached differently. Um, on the football field, I can be very aggressive, but on stage, it may require you to be quiet, may be quiet, require you to be still, and, and, but yet powerful uh, in your speech and in your demeanor, and you have to be conscious of that. Um, you know, you don't necessarily, you don't memorize the words, you live, you breathe the words, you become hmm. the words. So... When you're, when you're delivering a monologue, you're not just delivering a speech or a uh, motivational speech. You are 
telling the story of this character, however it comes out. Snot may be coming out of your nose, spit flying everywhere, tears or whatever it is. It's a very cathartic profession and it's uh, a very spiritual one if you open your body to allow that to flow through. And that's the one thing that I've learned is always to tell the truth in imaginary circumstances. That's the essence of, of being an actor. I give you so much credit. I, I think I would be far more nervous about being on Broadway than playing in a sporting event. And to go from, from what you were doing to that, I give you all the props in the world. Hey, listen, I, I was like literally pissing down my leg. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in, in New York City, I'm the best of That That was, because it's a grand opening. You know, you have, your, that's one of the greatest openings, I think, in all of, in all the plays is Billy Flint. You know, it's the buildup and the dancers and the, 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 the light, the bright light that comes in center stage, you come down the steps. And then, you know, you gotta, you gotta drop those notes. <laughs> you know, it's, that is, oh my God, you talk about nervous. My, my opening night, I'm, I'm backstage pacing like a panther and I'm thinking, oh shit, what did I get myself into? I'm sorry about yours, but I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into here? Why am I up here? Like, I'm gonna go out here, what if I fall down the steps? <laughs> you know, Billy, it's supposed to be cool, but I've enjoyed it. I, I've enjoyed that process. And, and hopefully when COVID opens back up and Broadway opens back up, I can do it again. So one of my favorite shows, I told you this before on HBO, Ballers with The Rock. You were on that show as well. And like we discussed before, those weren't just cameos where you're passing by in the office and you're waving hi to someone. You have some pretty intense scenes with The Rock. What's that like? At least it's not live. You get to do a few takes probably, but you're across from The Rock and some pretty seasoned actors. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was uh, it was intense. I, I recall, you know, going through that, that time, you know, because you have it's different from stage. You don't have a chance to build it up. Story. You gotta, you gotta walk in front of the lights and, and go, like right now, and, and deliver um, whatever they're asking you to do. And in the beginning, I'm trying to, you know, get the lines down in my head, but also try to marry that with the emotion. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, that's that's the problem. <laughs> you know, like, like, all right, check yourself, man. Check yourself. Keep in there. Go, Come on, Eddie, let's go. Like, you, this business, you know. So I had to um, to get over that hump. Like, I'm really doing this with Dwayne Johnson right now. I'm thinking, what is he thinking right now? Is he thinking I'm terrible? You know, all that stuff. Like, you have to eliminate the distractions, and you just got to go. So it was a very emotional scene, and I was just saying whatever came to my mind, curse words, and I just – kind of just used some things that um, I used in the past, like that I experienced in the past um, in, that, in that situation. And I would yell out for line if I didn't know it. And I would just say it and they, they spliced it and cut it together. And, you know, so it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. All right. We're a couple minutes away from questions coming in from our attendees and some people who are listening to us record this interview right now for Sports Business Radio presented by Thusio. Uh, I've got to ask you about the Super Bowl. 
We've got Tom Brady against Patrick Mahomes, Chiefs, and the Buccaneers. It's going to be different. Only 22,000 fans are going to be allowed to be there. Not a lot of the pomp and circumstance that we usually have during Super Bowl week, but it is a two-week layoff in between when they just played and, and when they're going to play the Super Bowl. You've played in big games. What's it like preparing for the Super Bowl? Oh, well, we didn't have two weeks. We had one one week to get ready. Uh, we didn't have a chance to enjoy being AFC champions. Uh, we had to uh, literally enjoy that night, enjoy the, the, the mini parade that we got. We got to the city, and the next day we were going to prepare for uh, the Rams. Um, well, now in the two weeks, you can sit back late and enjoy it and uh, kind of have a chance to exhale and, and realize you've done something special. Now for Tom Brady, this is like, you know, waking up and brushing his teeth, you know, he's in a championship every year, it seems like. And so he, he understands what it goes into it, the focus and so forth, I just put into it, but it's a lot of fun. Everybody's watching. Um, it's a dream fulfilled for many. I only played in one. Some guys played in zero. So enjoy it. Enjoy your teammates because each both teams will not be the same next year due, you know, to business reasons, salary cap and all of that. So I would say enjoy the moment. Super Bowl fits. Fashion has become such a big part of sports. Uh, I think you work with, is it Joanna Alba? Do do you still work with her? So, I mean, she's a designer to the stars like you and, and what's your fashion style? And, and, how much thought do you put into what I'm going to wear to an event like the Super Bowl or, or some of the parties? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm a classic. I have a classic yet um, with a hint of, uh, of contemporary style, like kind of what's out now. You know, I like to – these things change. You know, styles change, how they how clothes are fit, fitting you, uh, materials, colors. I know – I, have, I love blacks. I love certain colors, like certain certain pops of color here and there. But um, uh, you know, I put a lot of thought into it, and I, I usually you know coordinate with Joanna. And I look at a lot of what the young people are wearing. But I'm not going to dress like a 13 year old. But I'm going to at least have the style and the swagger of, of a 13 year old, you know, to some degree. <laughs> uh, but I'm always I'm always looking uh, for inspiration when it comes to uh, fashion. All right, we're going to go to some questions from our audience. Uh, Pat Ryan, his question is, what was the biggest thing that you learned coming into the league that you weren't prepared for? The biggest thing that I learned coming into the league that I wasn't prepared for was the lifestyle, um, having time and money that I never had in my life, and really not knowing what to do with it uh, in terms of education. You know, what I, I thought a million dollars was actually a million dollars, but it's not after taxes. It's significantly less. And after your agency, agent fees and so forth. So I had to learn how to manage my money differently and my time differently and really change the way I looked at wealth. Um, so that was an eye-opening experience. Pat has a follow-up question. What's the best menu item at Eddie George's Grill in Columbus? <laughs> oh, a quick plug there. Hey, I'll, I'll tell you, it's it's for me, it's the, the classic cheeseburger with bacon, bro. You cannot go wrong. Oh, that sounds so good. It's a 27 pound, 27 pound burger. It's for 27, right? 
So 27 pound burger, it's absolutely delicious. Wow, that's a big burger. Oh, it is, it is. Uh, Andrew has a question. 27 ounce burger, I'm sorry. I was, I was like, 27 pounds, that's like, a few people have to be sharing that. Listen, I, I've been playing golf today, so I'm thinking about how I missed my line. So excuse me, not 27 pounds. 27 ounces. <laughs> All right. That, that definitely makes more sense. The crazy um, burger will kill you on the spot. Exactly. Well, you would need a few people to eat that. Yeah. Andrew uh, says, many pro athletes struggle when their careers end. How did you deal with that transition? Um, in short, um, I dealt with it. It was very difficult. Uh, I sought out counseling. Uh, I, still, I still work with a counselor. Um, and that's helped me find out that, hey, you have to divorce from being just the athlete. You have to find out who you are mm-hmm. and in that regard. I think a lot of people go through that, you know, that what ne- what's next phase if they've been in the profession for a very long time. And uh, I've been able to do that, again, through finding what my, my purpose in life is, um, being a bridge builder, pouring into others. And if I do that, you'll be amazed at how the next step for you opens up in terms of what your life purpose is. So that's, that's, that's what I would say, you know, has helped me was seeking out help, realizing I needed the help and be willing to accept the help. I love that. And, and I think athletes are getting more and more comfortable with talking about mental health and going to therapy and Hey, you know what? We don't know it all. And sometimes we need some help from others. And here's what that looks like. And I think it, it empowers others to do the same. Yes. Yes, it does. Walter Farnham says, what is Eddie's most daunting task within professional sports? What is my most daunting task? In yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but yeah. maybe, uh, you know, is there is there a is there something in sports that you feel that just really needs to be changed? Uh, specifically with, with, um, with football. Um, I, I mean, there's all, you can always improve on something, you know, you can always think that, Hey, guys need better contracts. They need guarantees. Uh, but I, I think you, you have to understand the business. Number one, you've got to understand what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you can't rely on an agent. You can't rely on a, a liaison or your business manager. You've got to be a student of yourself. You've got to study it, period. And not, that's just not the playbook, but the playbook of life. You know, look at, you know, 30 for 30 group. Look at uh, some of the guys that made those key mistakes um, by, by, you know, whatever that is, social media, beating up some woman or um, being at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, making making sure you're making the right decision, knowing that you have a target on your back that people are always watching while you're playing and certainly after you're playing. Um, so you've got to understand that. The more that you understand that, you understand how the business works, then you're able to adjust that and have um, a secondary plan um, once your playing days are done, so you can continue to be successful. Just a couple more questions. Uh, Ryan wants to know, 
Tiki Barber wanted us to remind you that he has eight more rushing yards than you. With that said, who can flex the golden pipes on stage better, you or Tiki? <laughs> well, I've never heard Tiki sing, so I can't speak. <laughs> Listen, I know I can hold a couple notes here and there. I'm not going to break, you know, try to come up with a record. I know where my lane is, um, but hey, you know, Tiki got, got pipes. I go for George Washington. In fact, Tiki would make a great Aaron Burr in Hamilton. And a perfect Hamilton. <laughs> perfect. If you if you ever seen Hamilton, Aaron Burr, he would be perfect for that role. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Did you, when you uh, became an actor on Broadway, did you have to take vocal lessons? Is that something that came well, naturally well, to you? I know you're, aren't you married to someone who's a singer as well? Yeah, my wife is a singer uh, on SWB. But um, I want to be clear that I didn't wake up one day and say, hey, let me go and do Broadway. I had to work my way up to that. Mm-hmm. So I was in Nashville taking acting lessons uh, 10 years prior to me even jumping on the Broadway stage. So in a part of that process was singing lessons. And I took singing lessons to help with my speaking voice. And my acting coach always said, you can, you have a voice, you can sing, you can play the role of Billy Flynn one day. And I'm like, well, look, let's just get through this lesson. I'm not singing nowhere. And lo and behold, um, the, the opportunity came, it presented itself. I said, what the hell, why not? It'll make a great story if I get it, if I don't. So I went forward and got it and um, I built confidence in my singing voice. And that's not what I do. My wife, you know, rolls her eyes like, how the hell did you get on Broadway? And I'm the singer, I'm the performer, <laughs> you got it, you know? So, uh, but she's been very helpful in my, in my development in that area. Oh, that's amazing. Good to good to have in-house uh, assistance. Yeah. I wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about social justice initiatives in the NFL and just in the world in general. We've really seen more of that in the last year after the death of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor. Um, but is the NFL doing enough? Are we doing enough as a society? You know, I, I think it's not for me to, to, deter, to, to determine that. It's for everyone. This is not just a Black issue. This is a human issue. It's an equality issue across the board of different races. It just so happens that it happens to African-Americans more often. That's where the spotlight is. And that's what, that was the whole purpose behind Black Lives Matter. Yes, all lives matter. But in this day and time, in this instance, what we're seeing is that the people that are protecting us are actually hurting us and we are afraid of them. And I think you saw that the difference is, if you watched it in terms of how people were protesting and how they were treated in, in that regard versus what happened at the Capitol just a few weeks ago. Mm. And if you don't see that, then you really don't wanna address the issue. So once you, as a person, and excluding you to say, hey, this is not Eddie George's problem or his people's problem. This is our problem. How do we solve that? Then we're going down the right track and making real social change. And we can both say, here are our problems. This is the issue. What can we do about it? Not you or who's doing enough, but what can we do about it? And I know that people are saying, well, football players should just stick to playing football and this and that. Well, guess what? These football players have lives. They have families that are still there. We still experience things as athletes that 
the normal person does not. Some people, a lot of people look at me like, hey, he's not black, he's an athlete. Well, no, I have an African-American experience. I went to schools where I was the only black in the class, called the N-word on numerous kids, punching kids in the mouth. I've, I've experienced that. So I know what it feels like. So I say that it doesn't exist or to act like that, hey, we can throw some money at it, that's, that's BS. You know, you really have to come together and understand both sides and say, okay, we understand each other. Now, how do we get to a level of equality? How do we, and what does that look like? So, yeah, I mean, in the African-American community, there are definitely some other issues. There is, you know, black on black crime, like there is white on white crime, but we're talking about specifically the people that are to protect us, to protect and serve our needs as well. There's a difference in how that's, that's, that's being done. And that's clear that it with equality, doesn't that start in the home? I mean, I know that's how I feel. I'm a parent, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's my responsibility to teach my daughter about equality and, uh, you know, be around people of all colors and, and races and sizes and genders. And, and I, I feel, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a, a you know, political show here, but I do feel like if we're going to be better as a society – a lot of that starts in the home with us as parents teaching our kids about that. And a lot of, and a lot of, you're right. A lot of that does start at home. A lot, a lot of that, in a lot of homes in, in terms of African Americans, the mill is not there. The fathers aren't there. Hmm. You know, so they're either dead, in jail, um, or or not around. So you know that 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 structure of of having a mother and a father there the teaching equality where that is is is, is important so I, I think the father figure is definitely needed in terms of those homes for for kids that don't have a father so they can be led down the right path so they can understand that and let's be let's understand too you know what you're teaching your child about equality in that conversation is quite different than what my what I'm teaching my kids because our experiences are completely different. Right. And, and, and it, there's not a right or wrong to that, but it is what it is. So if you're having that conversation and, be, and being honest about it and saying, hey, there is a privilege here and we understand that, how do we break the barriers to that and bring a light to it? Say, hey, here it is. How do we address it together? And, and really come and find a happy medium with that. I want to end on uh, your experience at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, an excellent school. Um, again, you talked earlier. Yeah. What'd you say? Number one in the country, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so you talked earlier about being an entrepreneur. What are you focusing on right now as an entrepreneur? You talked about wealth management earlier. Um, and then, um, some of the things that you learned at the Kellogg School of Management that has stuck with you to this day? Um, there was a course um, called Entrepreneurial Finance taught by Stephen Rogers, who's now at Harvard. Um, I went to Kellogg specifically for that class because um, I learned about him through uh, the NFL when they had different um, uh, educational modules at Harvard, Wharton, 
Kellogg, and uh, I did the one at Harvard, and I said, okay, it was just a taste of being in, getting my master's in business. It was like a two-week deal. Uh, and I said, I want to go and get my master's. That inspired me to go get it. And uh, what, shoot, what, what the, the, the learning wasn't necessarily in the classroom. I mean, you're learning about different case studies. You're learning about finance, um, accounting, uh, operations, marketing, um, how to negotiate in class, but the learning happened outside of the classroom. So we was a very diverse group of people from across the world, from Russia, India, China, that flew every other week into Chicago to get this education. And that's where the, the learning happened. And, and it just, just really for me, it was listening and, and, speak, and, and, and speaking afterwards, but really listening to what they're saying and, and, and embracing that and, and growing from that perspective, from their own experiences. Um, and from the, uh, and what I'm doing now in wealth management is financial literacy. Uh, I, I think people don't understand how the basics of getting insurance, how insurance is much needed. And I'm tired of looking on uh, social media at GoFundMe pages to bury their loved ones. And, mm-hmm. you know, it really, it really bothers me with that. So, and that's something that I didn't really know growing up myself. So understanding like, hey, insurance is, is you have to have it, whether you, you rent it in terms of term insurance or you buy it in terms of whole insurance or you finance in terms of premium financing and, and how you can build generational wealth through those, those platforms among others. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. Hi, it's Brian Berger here. In addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the co-founder of the consulting firm Everything is on the Record. Since 2007, we've been working with CEOs, corporate spokespeople, pro sports team owners, athletic directors, elite athletes, and coaches to help them navigate the tricky media and social media landscape. My business partner is Rick Buecher of Fox Sports. As part of a new partnership with e-learning platform, Open Sesame, we are now offering many of our teachings via on-demand courses available on video. Courses include presenting your best self in a video meeting. Your personal brand is connected to your employer's brand. Pause before you post, text, and email. And scrubbing your social media. To take any of our insightful video courses on demand, visit opensesame.com and type in the words, everything is on the record in the search. That's opensesame.com. To learn more about how we can provide a customized training session for your organization, visit everythingisontherecord.com. That's everythingisontherecord.com. Now, here's Brian's interview with Malcolm Jenkins from May 2021. My guest is Malcolm Jenkins. He is a strong safety for the New Orleans Saints, a two-time Super Bowl champion. He won a Super Bowl with the Saints. He's won a Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles, three-time Pro Bowler, one of the great leaders in the NFL over the past decade. He's a contributor to CNN. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Malcolm Jenkins. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So I've been hosting this show for 17 years, and I got to tell you, I've interviewed a lot of athletes. I don't know that I've interviewed anyone who is on the ball like you are with everything that you're doing off the field business in the community. So I tip my hat to you for that. But let's start with where did that come from? 
Well, I think the the biggest thing for me is I watched my parents, you know, teach me lessons through action. I saw my dad really just give everything that he had to not only his three boys, but, you know, the other children in the neighborhood. And I saw the kind of impact that that had over time. And so, you know, that was a small investment by somebody with, you know, way less resources than me, a very smaller, substantially smaller platform than me. Um, but had life-changing impact on uh, the people that, that he extended himself to. And so for me, um, I grew up with that lesson to understand that my success is not enough. It's, it's not very beneficial to me or satisfying for me to make it to the top and be the only one there to celebrate. Uh, and so for me, I'm always looking for opportunities to not only advance myself, but create opportunities for others to to leverage their skills, leverage their capital and opportunities. Uh, you know, I, th- I just think that's an important cornerstone to all the work that I do. Yeah, we'll talk about some of your work specifically in a minute. But when you got into the NFL, was there a player or a few players who kind of took you under their wing and said, this is the right way to do it? Well, I think they're, they're the lesson – that I learned, and I think many guys in the NFL and professional athletes in general, um, it's a hard lesson to learn is that we don't talk about money enough. You know, I, I was, I had the opportunity to be around, uh, the first guy I got around was Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, before I even got into the league, I trained with him one summer, got to be at his house. And he's a guy who's been in, you know, business, been in investing, uh, he's done a ton of things. Now as a part owner of, you know, an NBA team, you know, right. he's done some really great things and it's, you you realize that he's been an open book, but you got to ask the questions, right? You got to ask and, and, and be inquisitive. And I think not enough of us uh, do that, me included. And it wasn't until, you know, I made a little bit of money, outlived some of the mistakes that I made as a young uh, professional athlete that I really started to think long-term and, and, and really take control of my own finances. I think that's the first part is getting kind of, uh, away from the, the taboo and the fears of just asking for help or asking what somebody's experience has been. Um, understanding that all of us are going pretty much through the same thing. I've had the same you know, experiences. Some have done good, some have done bad. Uh, all of those lessons are, are important for us to pass down, but we don't talk about it enough. So that was the biggest thing um, that I wish I would have done earlier is really just ask for help. Like, hey, Larry, you know, you've made a lot of money for a long time. And have figured out how to use your celebrity as well, your social capital, to create opportunities. Like, you know, how are you doing that? Who should I be talking to? What should I be looking at? Um, you know, all of those things, you know, I wish I had a little bit earlier. And, and you know, I'm focused now on creating op- opportunities and avenues to educate guys first so that they can kind of be in control of their own finances. So do you feel like these conversations are taking place more now in locker rooms? Like I, I've interviewed NBA guys. And they say that they feel like those are conversations taking place more in their locker room. It used to be, you know, what kind of car are you driving? What kind of rims do you have? What kind of stereo system now? They're talking about investing together or starting businesses together. Yeah, I think you see it more in the NBA. Um, It's fewer of them and they have a little bit more access to a lot of those deals, uh, you know, especially, you know, they have relationships with team owners where team owners will allow them to invest, you know, and be in their circles. That dynamic doesn't really exist in the NFL just yet. And so I think we're a little bit behind, which is the reason I'm so motivated to get guys thinking about it, because I do think 
that the NFL is, you know, every year we grow kind of our notoriety, new players and the, the, the space that we take up, you know, in society grows every year. And I think um, athletes are definitely starting to move towards uh, their own power. But I want them to, to know that it's not just social capital that they're you know, raising, right? They're not just popular to be sponsors or, or to be, you know, in, or endorsements and things like that. But they can actually have equity and use that to, to grow wealth and to move into doors that most of the times, you know, or any other time is going to be closed to African-American investors. Um, but because of who we are, we have an opportunity to move different. And it's just educating guys on what those opportunities look like, how to surround yourself. You know, what are the lessons about group economics, right? And, and the dangers of doing it by yourself and what you can do together and how other people make money, uh, how, to, how to move from the idea that you labor with your body for as long as you can, you save as much as you can, and then you see how long that lasts for you and your family. You know, that's, that's not how anybody else makes life-changing money. That's not how anybody else creates generational wealth. But those are the lessons that we've been, we've been taught. We've been conditioned to work, play, play the sport as long as our bodies can do it. And then once we can't, you know, hopefully we've saved enough to live off of. And that's, you know, that's economic suicide if you're talking about longevity. And so we have to recondition the way we've been taught to look at, um, you know, our own leverage, but then also our finances. Let's talk about the announcement of Malcolm Inc. This has got to be a, a really proud time for you. You've got six different companies under the Malcolm Inc. umbrella, Broad Street Ventures, Disrupt Foods, ENR Real Estate Group, Listen Up Media, Damari, and the Malcolm Jenkins Foundation. That's a lot of different companies. <laughs> Everyone's doing something different, but they're all under the Malcolm Inc. umbrella. First, I mean, my gosh, Malcolm, it's got to be such an amazing accomplishment for you that you've got these six companies under an umbrella that bears your name. Yeah, I think they're all extensions of me. I would say there's technically five companies. Broadstreet Ventures is, is an entity on its own, um, but obviously, you know, was was kind of put together by myself and uh, Rolanda Johnson, uh, who was the general partner of it. But uh, all of these companies, you know, are extensions of myself, you know, whether it's the, the things that I do in the community, whether it's um, my business, Damari's fashion, uh, you have Listen Up uh, Media, which is, you know, my uh, creative kind of outlet doing films, documentaries, things like that. Disrupt Foods, we're doing uh, franchising uh, opportunities. And, and in all of those spaces, it's, it really comes down to creating generational wealth, right? Not only for myself, but being able to create opportunities for others. So being able to create space for Rolanda Johnson to be, you know, the, the CFO and, and Joe Johnson to, to take over all of the things, uh, the operating of all of our um, uh, restaurants and, and franchising and real estate um, is creating opportunities for other people. India Robertson is, is the CEO or president of uh, Listen Up Media. You know, and so to be able to employ those people who are closest to me, these are lifelong friends that I've had, uh, means a lot as well. So to have an executive team that all looks like me, um, it's not only just about the creation of, you know, my a company and my namesake, but what that means from a legacy uh, standpoint for those around me. When you were growing up and coming up, you know, some of the people that you just mentioned that have been friends of yours, did you guys ever dream that this was possible? No, to be, I mean, to be honest, no. Um, 
it wasn't until, you know, um, probably my second year in the NFL, uh, myself and, and Rolanda Johnson, we've known each other literally since preschool. Wow. Um, you know, she's like, hey, you should be thinking about real estate. And now then I bought my first piece of real estate. And a few years later, she's like, you should be thinking about franchising. Got into franchising. Um, and then it got to the point where they're, you know, they're making, they're earning, you know, their corporate jobs. They're, they're doing a great job. They're moving up in the ranks, but they're earning somebody else some money. Right. And, and I have all these things that I want to do, but it's getting a little bit too big for me to manage. Um, and so to be able to have people that, you know, are qualified to do the work that, you know, have the experience that you can trust to come on and you partner up to do things together um, where we're all kind of using our skill sets to, to, to elevate the collective, um, that, that, that kind of, that tribe mentality mm -hmm. is something that I've dreamed of. That's, that's something that my dad taught me and I never knew what it looked like from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, but to be here now is definitely a proud moment to be able, um, like I said, to not only to, to get to this place myself, but to be able to bring those I love with me and create opportunities for people who look like me in my community. You play on a football team. Business is also like being part of a team, right? And, mm -hmm. and you're such a leader on the football field. I see that with you in the business world and in the community world as well. Do you think some of the skills that you've learned from sports and playing on a team have translated for you in the business world? 100%. I think it's the same. I've been a captain on almost every team I've been on. Um, and one of the biggest things I've learned from being uh, in a leadership position is all the time is that the best leaders uh, tend to follow the best and listen the best and, and know that they aren't the most talented and everybody's role is essential to the success of everybody. Um, and so, you know, that, like I said, I, I enjoy putting other people and delegating them to be responsible for, you know, for the execution and for me, it's just then my goal is just the vision. How do I keep us all focused on, you know, the voice of our businesses, the purpose? You know, what is it? What is the impact that we want to have and get accomplished and then allow them to do what they do best to execute that idea that when we started to align ourselves in that function, in that way, uh, things, you know, really just started to take off. And, and so we've been excited to grow and, and create not only, like I said, the, the vehicles for us to, to win, but how do we then take those same access, those same doors that we're kicking open, how do we prop them open for others to come in and, and, and be able to share in the same success that we're having? All right, let's go through some of your, your ventures. Uh, Broad Street Ventures, the only athlete-led venture capital firm fully funded by black and brown investors. I know uh, Jacoby Brissett, others are coming on board. How do you get people involved? What are you investing in? Tell us a little bit about Broad Street Ventures. Yeah, so Broad Street Ventures, you know, again, came from the idea of, you know, how are other people making money outside of labor? Uh, and you look at, you know, venture capital and in that space, investing in, in companies. And we looked at Rashawn Williams as somebody in the, in the space who's been doing a lot. He helped Nas, the rapper Nas, start uh, Queensbridge Ventures which made Nas way more money than his, him ever rapping, right? And so as an athlete, I'm looking at the same thing. How do I make more money off the field than I have on the field? Um, and so we reached out to Rashawn, uh, Rolanda and myself went to his house and he had a, a free seminar. We just kind of went down, you know, what is the VC? What is, uh, what are the strategies and things like that? Um, and fast forward, he, 
I had a vision for how do I create this for black athletes and, you know, and entertainers, how do we collectively, you know, use our money? Cause I know I've invested in, in one-off companies by myself. You cut a big check, 90% chance or higher that it's going to fail. You don't have anybody to do due diligence for you. You know, you don't know the questions to ask. Um, and so not only do we create opportunities for guys to be able to invest and in, in, in participate and collect in group uh, economics, but the education piece is the, really the main piece that I want. We don't pressure anybody to give us money, but we hold seminars, the same kind of seminars I went through to give guys the exposure to this space. This is what, you know, BC is. These, these are our strategies. Here are companies that we're already in. Um, so our fund, we opened it up in October and uh, we're in 10 companies already. Um, uh, we were in Airbnb, which made an exit last year. Wow. So that was a great, yeah. That, so, you know, Good we haven't even closed there. the fund. <laughs> right, yeah. We got uh, Noble, um, um, uh, Dapper Labs, Toro, and, and a few others. Um, and we, we plan on a few of those other companies making exits by uh, probably by the end of the year. And so we're going to close that fund in the next six months. And so the biggest thing is, just trying to make people aware, get them educated about the space, the opportunities that are out there, what the strategies are, and understanding that we as athletes have the ability to get into some of the best deals that are out there because of who we are. They, you know, companies want to have smart money, not just the dollars, but who we are, the social leverage and capital that we have as athletes and entertainers brings, you know, a certain amount of opportunity. And so we can get into the best deals, you know, instead of the, the ones that come to us from you know, friends, family. Um, and then once we secure those things, the next focus in how do we take that, those returns and push them back into black and brown companies, and, you know, who need startup money, who need investors. How do we, how do we then help in that space as well? Um, but we first have to, we have to secure the gains to, to do that. And so that's the biggest thing with Broad Street Ventures, educating the, the black and brown entertainment um, uh, investors and, and showing them what to do, but then secondly, uh, giving them real opportunity. So if you invest in our fund, you are automatically in 10 different companies, one of which has already made an exit. So, um, you know, that's, those are the type of opportunities that I want to bring to my peers. That's great. I mean, I've had Andre Iguodala on and the way he basically put it is if you can hit on two or three out of 10 investments, it's just like a baseball player, right? You're batting 300, you're doing really well. You don't hit right. on all of them. But, you know, you, you take your chances and you do your deal, due diligence. But I love the fact that, you know, you're involving others and you've got a good portfolio across different companies. And Airbnb, that, that was really good timing. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, we were, we were happy about that one for sure. Let's talk about disrupt foods, because there's an industry that a lot of athletes get into. Um, but that's not an easy business. But it seems like you're doing well in that space. And again, you're bringing others with you into the space. Tell us a little bit about Disrupt Foods. Yeah, so Disrupt Foods is, is uh, where we focus on our franchising, uh, most, of, most of which um, have been in quick service restaurants. Um, and so you know, what we've learned is that or what I've learned you know, as an athlete in this space is that this is an operations business, right? It's not, a, it's not something you put your money into and it just automatically comes back. This is solely based off of operations. Um, and Joe Johnson, uh, who, who runs all of the operations on that side for me, uh, has, had, has a ton of experience in the business and has really been taking the, the, the restaurants we've had and growing them. So we have an opportunity 
to acquire about 11 more um, quick service restaurants on the, on the East Coast. And what we're trying to do is similar to what we're doing with Broad Street Ventures is to open that up to to athletes who may be you know, who who may be um, um, trying to get into franchising. With athletes franchising partners is, is the fund we're trying to create where guys only have to put their money into it and they automatically become a franchise. And we work on and, and handle all of the operations uh, for those stores. Like I said, we have a track record. We already have 12 stores under our belt and trying to get to 30 um, by the end of 2025. And we want to do that by giving guys access to be able to invest, put their money into it, uh, knowing that in the franchise space, only about 15% of franchisees are African-American. And it's way lower than that when you, when you get to quick service restaurants. Um, and so even some of the spaces we've been in, you know, there's been only, you know, five or six, a handful of other black franchisees in the entire company. So there's a huge space for us to, to be able to, I think, uh, move into some things that we can kick doors open and, and give guys, again, exposure to, um, you know, another uh, style of investment without having to worry so much about the operations. Are there any specific restaurants that you're invested in that you can talk about or are you still looking into that? Yeah. So right now we have um, 12, unit, uh, 12 restaurants uh, under Papa John's franchises. Um, but when we create the fund, the athletes franchise um, fund, uh, we're going to that'll be open up to uh, many quick service restaurants. Um you know, that, that, that one, we just one franchise. We're looking for opportunities to, to grow. But we obviously already have our foot in the door uh, with Papa John's. I mean, I look at Papa John's, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that, isn't Shaquille O'Neal part of Papa John's? And, and do you yeah. know Shaq? Have you guys talked about this? Yeah, we have. I mean, we've been with Papa John's for a few years. Even like, we got into Papa John's right before they, you know, hit the former CEO, got to talking really crazy and the company struggled for a little bit. Um, but our stores performed, you know, even in that turmoil, performed probably better than a lot of stores. Um, and we're, we were fresh into it. And now, you know, here we are on the next turn of it. You get Shaq into it. They right. change a lot of it. He changes a lot of the culture, not only from just being a franchisee, but some of their uh, community uh, efforts. And then him being on the board uh, was very, very uh, important, especially even to me as a franchisee, to be reinvested into that brand. And since then, has taken that brand and really elevated it. And when we look at franchising, uh, one of the unique things that I like about it is there are so many different, there are so many, there are so few, very few black franchisees uh, out there. But the majority, I feel like, of the workers oftentimes are black and brown, right? And the stores are oftentimes in black and brown communities. And so how we get an opportunity to affect um, you know, the, the workers, you know, who and create jobs in our, in our, um, in our own communities and, and, and be the bosses, right. And, and make sure that we take care of people and we create opportunities for people, not only to, to work and to manage or, but how do they move from a manager standpoint or, or position up to an ownership? You know, how do we get them to, to elevate, to be franchisees? Those are all things that, that we're thinking about in, in, in weighing as we, move into the franchise space. I love it. Uh, Listen Up Media, your content company. What are you working on there? Because, you know, I'm reading things that you're working on and it sounds like you've got some exciting projects in the works. Yeah, um, the, we, the first project we were able to get on uh, was a documentary, Black Boys, is streaming now on Peacock. That was, I was really proud of that piece. Came on as an executive director. 
And one of the things that we're working on now is I did a fellowship uh, at Harvard last year. Um, and one of the things that I studied was the wealth gap between African-Americans and uh, white Americans, knowing that on average, uh, white Americans have about 10 times the net worth of African-Americans and, and understanding what does that look like throughout history? Um, you know, how do we get here today? And so I'm working on a docu-series now uh, where we explore the wealth gap between African-Americans and, and white Americans over, over that span time of American history. Um, and, and that's something I found uh, uh, gave me great understanding. It's obviously a huge motivator for why I'm moving in, in this space now and, and, and we're picking up the narratives that we are is because you see how, you know, we can I have a foundation since 2010. I've done a ton of charity work. But what you realize is when you create programs, you their kids and you come to your programs and they go back to the environments that they came from. The only way to really truly bring justice and, and equality uh, to our country is to is to change the environments in which those youth come from. Um, and to do that, you need there's no way to do that without, you know, creating financial stability, without creating generational wealth, jobs, opportunities um, and creating a financially stable, um, you know, um, uh, citizen. And so those are all the things that, that we're trying to do. And even a listen up, you know, it's, it's a creative branch for me to be able to um, speak, you know, and, and use my voice in the most effective way. I think I've always been exposed to sports media outlets or social media, and you just really can't have true dialogue or long drawn out ideas or well vetted, you know, thoughts uh, in those spaces. And so this is a way for me to own my own voice, to put out my own narratives, to tell the stories that I want to tell um, that I think, you know, uh, need to be told um, from an education standpoint, but even from uh, just just documenting uh, our existence and our voice is important to do through film. I've seen you on CNN. I think you do an outstanding job as a contributor. Has that experience helped you a little bit with your content company? And, you know, I, I look at your former teammate, Drew Brees, who's off to NBC, and I've looked at you many times and said, I think Malcolm could be a really good uh, contributor you know, to a sports network when you're done. Are those things that interest you? Yeah, they definitely, they definitely interest me. And, and there are some opportunities um, out there. You know, obviously I went to school for um, uh, strategic communication. So, you know, dealing with the media and, and analyzing, especially football is very easy for me. Like I love to talk about, you know, ball. Um, but even contributing in CNN this past year has been, uh, a unique situation for me. It's the first time I really have give, been given a platform to speak, you know, in, in a political, you know, space where it's not sports, where I'm not the smartest person, you know, on the, on the microphone. And that's, but it's been great for me too to be able to really think about how to use my voice in in the most effective way. And, you know, I take that that platform very serious. So that when I do show up, I'm saying something that's meaningful and that I think will, you know, will age well over time, um, you know. And so I think that is giving me a lot of practice to really figure out my voice and it's helped frame some things for me and what, what I want to do with Listen Up Media. You've done a tremendous amount of work in the community, as you were saying, both through your foundation. But, you know, I look what you're doing on the, the social justice front. And again, I tip my hat to you because you're not just you know, speaking on TV, you're going to meetings, you're rolling up your sleeves and, and you're, you're on the front lines of this. I had Emmanuel Ocho on recently. How are we doing? 
because, you know, we see the, the shooting in Minnesota this week that was so unnecessary. And I feel like every time we're taking a few steps forward, we take 10 steps backwards. How are we doing with progress here? Um, I don't think that we're doing well. I think that um, oftentimes in this space, we get caught up in the pageantry of change and not the actual work of change. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's been a ton of companies and um, sports leagues and voices that have all come out. You know, they can condemn the violence. We can make banners and slogans and hashtags and, and all feel good because we've verbally put ourselves on the right side of history. But when we look at what has gone into, uh, you know, the changes in policy that, you know, will eliminate the, the victims that we constantly see, none of that has been really put, you know, into the fire. None of that has been abandoned. Um, we, we still are, you know, debating, you know, right now, even, you know, the George Floyd trial, you know, in, uh, in progress, we, we are still seeing that we are divided on um, the idea of policing. And that's, that's a lot of work that I'm still doing and trying to focus in Philadelphia uh, right now as they, you know, try to figure out or introduce a policy that would create an oversight board, a community oversight board that actually has teeth and can hold uh, police accountable. Those type of things, you know, which seem like no brainers, right? You would want your community to be able to hold the, the police departments that they pay taxes to accountable. Um, those things are not in place right now. And there's actually huge opposition uh, to keep it that way. And, and the hard part of, about all of it is that there is growing violence right now around the country. And everybody wants to feel safe no matter what community you live in. But the trust with Black Americans and the, the police just haven't, you know, hasn't been uh, earned and has been really chiseled away over decades. And it doesn't make it better when the when solutions are kind of put on the table to, to add up some more accountability so that people can restore trust. Um, if there's no accountability, that trust will never be restored. And then it's hard for officers to actually go and clean up neighborhoods that are riddled with violence because you don't have people who are participating you don't feel like the community doesn't feel like the police will protect them, uh, nor do they have the best interest of uh, the community in mind. And, and that just creates a cycle in which, you know, poverty over policing and violence uh, tears, tears black and brown communities apart. Is the NFL doing a better job at supporting your efforts? Uh, you know, again, Roger Goodell comes out last year after the George Floyd killing and, you know, we need to do better. And I'm hearing rhetoric are they doing better? I mean, I'm not behind the scenes like you. So I, I don't know yeah. if it's rhetoric or if it's action. Well, I think the NFL players are doing a great job when it comes to the work that needs to be done and some of the advocacy. I think you see guys doing more than just social media and just, you know, and, and just speaking up, but actually getting out there and affecting local and, and state politics. Um, or providing some kind of, you know, resource to those who are fighting for it. I think the NFL has done a, a good job when it comes to cutting checks. Um, but when it comes to the potential of a league like the NFL and the influence, I think they sometimes, well, not sometimes, I think they fall short. Um, you hear Roger Goodell make the statements that need to be said, but oftentimes it's never a proactive statement. It's always reactionary and kind of late to the party. Um, but more importantly, you don't really hear many of the NFL owners 
uh, or team owners being active. And I think those are the guys who have the most power, especially politically, um, to really push um, on these state and local you know, politics. You look at what the NBA did with the All-Star game and moving it from Atlanta, uh, or, or I think it was the NBA or whoever, whatever league it was, who moved it from Atlanta. That is, that is significant. You, you're, you are taking your business and, and you know, moving it in, in a way that affects local politics. I think that is, that is where the potential of these leagues you know, have. And I think if that is the bar, then, the, then our league has fallen short. But I also have a very high standard for, um, for people who have true potential. A few minutes left before I let you go. You're a fashion guy. I mean, I see your fits and, and they are A+. Uh, Damari is a company that you have. Tell our listeners about that and how you got involved in that. It seems like that's a passion of yours. So I bet it's fun to, to be the head of that company. Yeah, it's definitely a passion project of mine. Um, I started Damari uh, probably five years ago. It's going fast. Um, and... And it's a uh, custom clothier, so we make custom um, clothes for men and women, uh, mainly uh, suits, uh, but are branching out into other, uh, a larger product offering to some more casual wear. But it's, it's essentially, you know, I, I feel like your clothes, or at least for me and where I grew up, your mm-hmm. clothes and your style has always been a form of self-expression. And so for me, it's the way that I, you know, express myself. I, I feel the way I dress. Um, and I've always, um, you know, enjoyed putting those things together. So to be able to put my hand into designing where I get to make all of the clothes that I wear, yeah. uh, it's, it's, been, it's been fun. And being able to, to bring on some other designers that I think are, you know, up and coming, that are really doing some cool things. We've done everything from red carpet looks for celebrities to, um to guys in the NBA, the NFL, um, MLB, um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, a ton of guys, even just, you know, local patrons and, and weddings and things like that. We've been able to service people uh, from all over uh, through this and be able, and I always talk about the difference between fashion and style. I'm not huge into fashion, you know, the trends, the, the things that everybody wants to get on, but I am very focused and I enjoy helping people find their style. And what I mean by that is helping them find their voice, what's comfortable on them, what helps them feel like the best version of themselves um, and not the best version of what they saw somebody else wear. And I think that part to me is, is really the part that I enjoy um, is, is getting in with a client, getting them to stretch themselves just a little bit, but really stay within, you know, the, the confines of who they are as a person and find their voices uh, through their clothes. Seventeenth uh, game added to the NFL schedule. You know, it's a, it's another opportunity for players to get injured, but it is a little bit more money for everyone as part of the new collective bargaining agreement. What do you think of Game Seventeen? Well, I think you know the players have spoken. You know, it was a lot of going back and forth. Uh, players spend a lot of time on weighing the options as to you know what are the the health and safety, you know, aspects of at playing the 17 game, but what are also the business, you know, in, in monetary gains uh, to playing the 17 game. And I think um, when we went to a vote, the vote passed that we want to go to a new 17 game. Then I came with a lot of new benefits that came with guys getting compensated for that, that 17 game. Um, and then hopefully everybody after that negotiates with the 17 game, you know, in mind. Um, but 
in hindsight, you know, I, that was before, that was all pre-COVID. You know, after we signed that first collective uh, bargaining agreement, we went into COVID and then you have uh, a year where revenues dip. Um, and we're spreading that loss, you know, across the next few years as players. So to have the TV deals that have come in and a 17 game that's going to add some more revenue to it, I think helps from a business standpoint of recovering from a year where revenue was down. Um, so while nobody really wants to play more, um, I think players, again, it went through our democratic process, it got passed. Um, so that is what it is. But we we made sure that we secured uh, an, an increase in benefits, a significant increase in benefits, an increase in salary. Uh, minimums went up. Guys are getting compensated for that 17 game. Um, and moving forward, like I said, recovering from what was a, a down year uh, because of COVID, having this new strand of revenue definitely helps. Last question for you. Drew Brees retired. I know he was a, a leader and a Hall of Fame voice in that locker room. Now the dynamics of the locker room change. You've always been a great leader. You pointed out earlier, you've been captain on most every team you've been on. How does the dynamics of the Saints locker room change now that Drew Brees has moved on? Yeah, I mean, you know, Drew's been in that locker room since I've been in the NFL. So to, to imagine the Saints locker room, at least for me, without Drew Brees, you know, takes a little bit of a stretch of the imagination. Um, but you know, at the same time, the reality is that there are, you know, qualified leaders on the team um, that will take over. You know, I think DeMario Davis being, you know, kind of the the A1 uh, kind of guy in the locker room, um, just always a great voice, you know, in leading guys on both ends of the ball or really all three phases of the game. Uh, great rapport with the coaches. Uh, Cam Jordan is a guy who's been with the Saints his entire career. Um, quality, you know, high quality player, but also a great leader. Um, we lost Thomas Morstead, uh, who was one of our captains as well. Um, and he'd been in – he was my draft class in 2009. He got with the Saints. So losing him, Andrew, I think will be uh, big. But guys like myself, Teron Armstead, a few other captains. And, and there are going to be some new captains, you know, that that come up. <laughs> and that's I think that's the exciting part. Like, you know, what, 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 what do you get from a Jameis Winston, right? What do you get from some of the younger players that are now going to be pushed into that, that – that, uh, role of being a leader. All right. I got to ask you this. It just popped into my head. So I see news yesterday. There's going to be a movie about Sean Payton and the person playing him is Kevin James, who I just don't see Kevin James as Sean Payton. Like if you just look at them, they don't look at all alike. And he's been in like Paul Blart, Mall Cop. And, and I, what did you think when you saw that? Were you like, what? Uh, with Sean, it's hard. You can't predict anything with Sean. So uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the end, what the end result will be. I'm sure if it's a, a story about Sean Payton, it'll be an entertaining one for sure. Malcolm Jenkins, New Orleans Saints, two-time Super Bowl champion, the head of Malcolm Inc. Congratulations. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Malcolm Jenkins. Like I said at the beginning, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I think you were doing A-plus work in our world. Thank you. Keep it up and uh, best of success to you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business 
Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.